And good evening, everyone, again. <laughs> All right. So before we get started, go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Second Peter chapter three, uh, specifically verse nine. But we're going to we're going to take in verses one through nine just to get the greater context. And this sermon is sort of the lost message of the misunderstood verses. Um, because we missed a week before because of sickness and various things, but uh, this is sort of a, an add-on to the end of that message or a sermon series there. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9. Did I say 1 Peter? I meant 2 Peter. Keeping you guys on your toes. On your toes. (laughs) 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 9. All right. So this verse uh, is one of the most popular verses uh, used to dismiss the doctrine of election. And uh, the meaning of the verse is simply assumed by many Uh, without the context, and it's taken without study, Uh, and it's sort of a tradition, I would say, of the, at least within my experience, within the the Baptist uh, culture, Southern Baptist culture, I should say. Uh, I I know for a fact that I use this. It was was very much a hallmark of fighting uh, the doctrine of election. So yeah, let's go ahead and dive right in, and I'll begin reading verse number one of chapter 3, and then we'll end in verse 9. So please follow along as I read. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of 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 the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let's pray really, really quickly. Father in heaven, we need you. We ask that you would, by your spirit, be with us. You've promised to do so where two or more are gathered. And so we ask that you would, uh, that you'd speak to us by your word, 
through your spirit, that we would understand rightly, that we would rightly divide your, the word of truth, that we would submit our minds to what the word of God says, and that you would use that to change us, to make us more like Christ so that we might follow him, that we might obey his commandments and walk in the way that we should go. Father, I pray that you would use this time for our good and for your everlasting glory. And I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, the first thing that we notice in this passage is that the subject of the passage is not salvation. The subject of this passage is the day of the Lord. So Peter is explaining the reason for this delay in the promised judgment given by Jesus in Matthew 24. So God is, God is still coming in judgment during this time, and He will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night, as we see in verse number 10. The second thing to notice is that the verse in question, verse number 9, speaks of the will of God. God is not willing for something to happen. Theologians have long recognized that there are three ways uh, in which the will of God is spoken about in Scripture. There is what is called the sovereign decretive will of God, not to be confused with the decretive will of God, which is how I was pronouncing it. That was a bad joke for you guys. Um, (laughs) This refers to the will by which God brings to pass whatsoever He decrees. So this is something that always happens. It's not in question. It's always going to take place because God has decreed it so. Nothing can thwart that will. This is like passages like Isaiah 46.10. This will is also known as the secret will of God, something that we don't have knowledge of until it takes place in time. So secondly, that's the, the first one, first will of God that we see in Scripture. The second, second one is the prescriptive will of God. This is God's will revealed in His law or His commandments as, as we most assuredly know and see in our daily lives. Uh, people have the power to break this, uh, this will of sorts. And we see it with our children every single day. We see it in our own lives, personally. And it's important to state, though, that, that although men have the power to break these commandments and precepts, they do not have the right to do so. Uh, we are still, as creatures of the living God, under obligation to obey His commandments, though we do not do so. The last will of God is God's will of disposition. So I'm going to read a quote from Dr. Sproul and Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. And I think he, he sums it up really well in understanding this, the will, God's will of disposition. So I'm going to read that for us now. This will, the will of disposition, describes God's attitude. It defines what is pleasing to Him. For example, God 
takes no delight in the death of the wicked, yet he most surely wills or decrees the death of the wicked. God's ultimate delight is in his own holiness and righteousness. When he judges the world, he delights in the vindication of his own righteousness and injustice, yet he is not gleeful in a vindictive sense towards those who receive his judgment. God is pleased when we find our pleasure in obedience. He is sorely displeased when we are disobedient. Now, there are many uh, that I know of in the Reformed community and brothers and sisters that I love dearly uh, that would look at 2 Peter 3, specifically verse 9, and feel that that what we have here is God expressing His will of of disposition. They believe the text is... Uh, is saying that God is not wishing or desiring to see any human being perish in one sense, even though that is exactly what will happen if a person does not repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ. The fact that people perish is not something that makes God happy. Uh, He would rather it never have happened, uh, but to uphold His holiness and His justice, He must punish rebellious sinners by sending them to an eternity in hell. You know, and a a lot could be said uh, for this view, and, uh, you know, like I said, have many Reformed brothers and sisters in the faith that I I love that that hold to it, and I'll I'll say this, it solves many problems. Um, It's easier, I think, to hold to that. However, I, I don't think that that's the right view, and... Yeah, I, w- I would say that I, I take a different view. So I think the first thing that we have to look at and the reason why I would take a different view is you have to follow the pronouns of this passage. So first thing you have to ask is who are all? Who is, who's, who's all? When we, ask that, we have to ask that question. The people Peter is... Uh, people. Pe- the people Peter is addressing are clearly identified. He speaks of the mockers in here as they, but everywhere else he speaks to his audience as you or the beloved. And I think this is is really important. Uh, But surely, you ask yourself, but surely all means all, right? Most times I use it, it means all. Well, usually yes, but that's not the case all the time. This has to be determined by the context in which the words are found. I think a good example is when, let's say, a a school teacher uh, is in a classroom and is about to start the class, and he asks, are we all here? Is everyone here? Yes, we're all here. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. He's not asking everyone, uh, is everyone on the planet in this classroom right now? No. No. No, that would be silly, right? Yeah. That would be so silly. There can't be that much room unless, <laughs> unless someone made a big, giant building yeah. like this and made it really, really tall so there was like... Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so because of the context in which the question is framed, are we all here? Uh, we understand that it's referring to 
the classroom or the type or whatever, whatever it is. In this case, it's all the students in the classroom. And he's asking if they're all here. So it's specific to that group of people. Uh, to say that he is referring to all people on the planet would be a just gross misinterpretation of the intended meaning of the question. And the same thing applies to our passage today. So the question in 2 Peter 3, chap- or chapter 3, verse 9, is whether all refers to all human beings without exception or whether it refers to a specific group. And the context in- indicates that Peter is writing to a specific group and not all mankind. The audience is confirmed when Peter writes, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. He addresses them as beloved. Can we even, I think we can even get a little bit more specific as we look in the previous book, which was the first letter that Peter was writing to him. And he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. So I think that even narrows it down a little more. And he's like, well, everyone's kind of beloved, but not everyone's elect. So, Peter is writing to the elect Jews who have been dispersed in 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9, when he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so I would agree with Dr. Sproul and many other scholars who believe that the will of God spoken of here is not God's will of disposition, which is an attitude, uh, or God's attitude, what is pleasing to Him, what's displeasing to Him, but His sovereign decretive will. God is not willing that any of the beloved should perish. Allowing for this premise that this is God's will of disposition, if the any or, or all here refers to everyone in human history, then you're, you end up with universalism. It's, you can't escape it. And just so you know, universalism is the false doctrine that teaches that everyone is going to be saved and that no one is going to hell. And I would say that that's fairly contradictory with the rest, the rest of Scripture. So if God is not willing in His decretive, sovereign will, that any person should perish, then what? No one will perish. Whoever He is not willing in His sovereign will for them not to perish, they will not. We can, we can trust in that. We should trust in that. And so this interpretation, it makes complete sense within the context of the passage. The elect are not justified I think this is important. The elect are not justified by their election. It's still by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So if a person is is to be saved, they must come to that repentance and faith. And the doctrine of sovereign election simply explains who will do so. All the elect ones will. Jesus assures us of, of this in, in John 6:37 when he says, "All that the Father gives to me will come to me." And so, what is Peter really trying to communicate 
in this passage? Well, Peter is encouraging the readers not to, not to be discouraged <laughs> that what was promised, uh, though it had not come to pass yet, it would surely come to pass. Because these, these uh, elect Jews would have remembered the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. They would have remembered verse 34 saying, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So for, for those people 30 plus years or so, it was 80, 67 when this was taking place, when, when Peter was writing this, that's 30 plus years after Christ died after he had promised that judgment was coming, that was a long time to them. That's a, a, a fairly good chunk of their life, practically all of it for, for most of them. But it wasn't, it wasn't a long time for God. And I think that's one of the reasons why Peter says what he says in, in verse number 8, talking about a day is like a thousand years. And so Peter is he's communicating there is a purpose for that delay. And so it's, it's to extend God's mercy. It's to extend His kindness to those Jews who would repent during that intercovenantal time period. You see, the new covenant had come with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the old covenant would continue until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And that had not come to pass yet. So at this point in history, when this letter was penned, not all the elect Jews in the nation of Israel had come to repentance and faith. And so he was encouraging them, continue, fight the good fight. The judgment to come may have seemed delayed to some, but God was being very long-suffering toward the elect Jews, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there is, just to be clear, there is much more that could be said about the connection of Matthew 24 and the destruction of the temple and the conclusion or consummation of the old covenant and the, the rise of the new covenant. Um, but that is another sermon for another time. And so the main point that I'm focusing on is that verse 9 is indeed referring to the elect Jews that it was addressed to. And so rather than denying election, like many do with this verse, ironically, verse 9, understood in its biblical context, is one of the strongest verses in favor of election. You see, the context of 2 Peter 3 shouts and screams that Peter, when, it, when, when writing of all, is actually referring to the elect. And praise God for his election. For without it, we would be forever lost in sin and death. So, with that in mind, let's, let's go to God and pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your election. Father, we know that it is not because of anything that we've done or will do or have, have thought about doing 
that you choose to send your spirit and, and make alive dead souls. And so we, we just thank you. We praise you. We ask that you would humble us whenever we talk about your sovereign election, that we would understand it rightly, that there is nothing inherently special about any of us, but you are just gracious and kind. And so we ask that you would, you would use this understanding of this scripture to, to make us love you more, to make us love our neighbors more, to make us go out and be following you in everything that we do, to be pressing the crown rights of Jesus and to be having Christ, all of Christ for all of life. Father, we need your help to do that. We can't do it on our own. So please go before us, prepare the good works that we might walk in them. And I pray that you would use this time that we have the rest of the night and as we commune together, because the service does not stop right now, but as we continue to commune, keep what was said here today fresh in our minds as we talk about it so that we would be affected by your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.